Welcome to the Mechanical PE Exam Prep Podcast, the podcast where I give mechanical engineers like you the tools and motivation to get your professional engineering license. This podcast is a long time coming, and this is going to be the first episode in the series. I'm excited today to talk through 10 steps that you want to focus on as you're getting started toward your PE. So this episode is for you if you just found mechanical PE exam prep, whether you were perusing YouTube trying to solve a specific problem or whether you're early in the journey and you're deciding if you want to go for your PE someday and it's something that you know you want to do, you have your reasons why, but you're not quite sure how to get started, what you should do first, and you're looking for some resources to point you in the right direction, you have come to the right place, especially if you're a mechanical engineer focusing on the HVAC and refrigeration discipline or the thermal and fluid systems discipline. I think some of the advice that I'm gonna offer here is widely applicable to all aspiring professional engineers, but some is uh, starts to get a bit more specific toward the mechanical discipline as we get closer to the end. And toward the end of the episode, I'll share with you a bit about some of the resources that I've put together over the years that may be helpful to you if you're going for one of those two disciplines. So with that, let's get into the specific steps, 10 steps that you need to get started toward your PE. Step number one, gather state board requirements. So before you start studying, you're going to want to find out what the requirements are for your specific state that you're planning on getting licensed in. So if you live in one state and you work in another, we're specifically talking about the state board requirements for the state that you work in because that's where you're trying to get licensed unless you're trying to get licensed in your home state and then you're going to do the paperwork to, um, to get your license in the other state after the fact. Uh, states will be happy to do that for you. It's just some paperwork and a fee. But um, you want to focus on what state you want to get licensed in first because that's where you're going to be applying. And really the main difference that you want to figure out is what is the sequence going to be in your state? And I've actually put together a map, which I'll link in the show notes, for what the sequence is in general. There's basically two types of states. In some states, like New York, where I got my license, you do your application first, and you describe your experience, you have your references on there, and then you get your approval to go ahead and sit for the exam. And then once you pass the exam, you're going to get your license. There's no other intermediate step because you've already went through the application process on the front end. In other states, like Texas, New Jersey actually recently transitioned to to this kind of alternate method, you just register for the PE exam first. You don't need to do anything with the application right away. You just start by studying for the exam, registering and taking it. Only after you pass the exam do you go ahead and complete the application. So if you're in that second type of state, the interesting thing is, you may not be eligible for a variety of reasons. If your experience falls short of what's required in your state, if you're not able to get the references, if anything in your application um, doesn't meet the requirements, now you've gone through all the trouble of registering registering for and taking the PE exam, uh, and then you're in for a surprise when you actually do the application. So you really wanna make sure that you understand all of the requirements first whether the order is application first or exam first. In either case, you really want to have a clear handle on that before you get started. And the best way to do that 
is to actually spend some time going to your state board's official website and you can link there from the NCS website. So I'll include a link in the show notes to that as well. There's a link for all 50 states. Just go straight to your state. Sometimes it's a bit uh, overwhelming. There's a lot of information there to read through, but it's worth taking some time. There's not a wide variety of different information that you're gonna find. Most states have similar processes. It's kind of one of the two flavors that I mentioned, but it's a good idea to spend you know, half an hour, an hour of your time at the beginning of the process getting clear on this before you go through some of the subsequent steps. Step number two, describe your experience. So I'm assuming that you're in a state where you're doing the application first because these next two steps are describe your experience and approach your references. So I'm assuming that you're going ahead and doing that right away. If you're not, if you're just focusing on the exam first, then you're gonna have to do these steps later anyway. So maybe the order changes, but you still wanna be aware of what's involved. So the rule of thumb for describing your experience is to talk about design work. So if you work on design every day, then that's perfect. Your experience already lends itself well to the application. If it doesn't, that's okay. There's a lot of folks that are in the same situation as you, and that doesn't mean that your application is going to fall short. But you want to talk about interaction that you have with the design process. So this includes anything like technical drawings, calculations, analysis, or technical recommendations that you have made under the guidance of a PE, if you're working for a PE, or even interactions that you've had with professional engineers that you collaborate with, so they don't have to be your direct management, they can be your peers, or PEs that report to you. Sometimes this happens if you're uh, in a management structure where your company is hiring external engineering consultants. So you may have professional engineers that are reporting to you and you're reviewing their work, but you yourself are not yet a licensed professional engineer, that work is the exact type of work that you want to talk about. So go into detail about those work streams and spend some extra time focusing on the technical stuff. Really think about the parts of your role that is truly engineering and spend 80% of your focus on that. Another tip that I have, and this just comes from reviewing a lot of drafts that engineers have written over the years, um, you know, just kind of asking for guidance on how they should write this this content down. And the number one thing that I see is folks saying we instead of I. And I understand why we do that. It comes from wanting to be a team player. We're working within an organization where things are done as a team. We want to be diplomatic. We don't want to step on any toes. We don't want to overstate our contribution um, and make others feel like theirs was less important or like we're trying to steal their credit. That's all valuable, you know, social and professional skills for the workplace. But when it comes to this application, you really want to use this opportunity to display yourself in the most positive light possible. And there's nothing wrong with saying that I designed or I created or I reviewed or I produced drawings or I, you know, produced XYZ calculations and analysis. Even if you were part of a group where you did this together, it's still accurate to say that you did that work. So go deep on the technical parts of your role. Don't worry about overstating your contribution if things were done as a team. That doesn't mean that you're embellishing and saying that you did things that you didn't do. You're just saying that when things were collaborative, you're not 
taking time to spell out the specific contributions of others. You're just saying what you did and leaving it at that. And as for the non-technical parts of your role, you really want to give those a light touch. So if a lot of your work is project management related, if there's a large administrative component, then it's understood that those aspects of a job are part of a lot of people's jobs. A lot of professional engineers have to do those things all the time. That's fine. We just don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that in your application because even though that's useful experience, it's not particularly relevant to the professional engineering license. So it's really tangential. You can mention it, but I wouldn't spend more than a sentence or two because it's not uh, helping paint the picture of you as a professional engineer. Number three, approach your references. It's never too early to start asking your references if they're willing to endorse you. So if you have specific people in mind, then get this on their radar as soon as you can, the sooner the better, so that they can prioritize getting you what you need. The last thing you want to do is have your application, you know, 90% ready, and then you need endorsements from specific people that you haven't even brought this up to them and they're not aware that you're expecting them to put their name down and and say that you're qualified for this. Also, I think it's helpful to have these conversations early because it sort of focuses you on where you're trying to go. If you have to ask for others to, to do something, especially people that are senior, people that are respected, that are already licensed that you've worked with, then you're going out of your way to get them involved. And for me, it, it sort of gets you to realize the significance of what you're up to. And I think that helps with motivation and helps push through uh, some of the, the study momentum that you're trying to build early in the process. And this is another thing to be aware of, circling back to the first point about knowing your state requirements. Different states have different numbers of referrals that you need. So some states, like New York, you had to have three. I spoke to someone from uh, Nebraska. I believe they need five. So it's different from one state to the next. And not necessarily all of them have to be professional engineers. In my case, uh, my direct manager at the time was not a professional engineer, but he was very senior and experienced in, in the industry. So it would have been silly for me not to include him as one of my references, especially since he knew my work better than anyone else since he was my direct manager. So there's definitely exceptions. And you know, all things being equal, it's always better to have PEs as references than not. But if you have two PEs and one non, and there's a good reason for that, I think that makes a lot of sense. So um, think about who you want to ask. And um, it doesn't always have to be managers. It can be key colleagues or mentors that you've had that are professional engineers. And it can even be folks from outside your organization that you've worked with that would have had an opportunity to get some observation of your technical skills and see you working as an engineer where they would be able to vouch for you. Number four, ask for support. Set up a time to talk with family, friends, colleagues, managers, any of the key people in your inner circle, and let them know that you're going for your PE. This is a serious aspiration that you have. It's a big goal. It's going to take a lot of time and energy. And you want to share with them the reasons why this goal is important to you and ask them for their support during the process. I think a lot of us have a tendency to want to be quietly impressive, right? We want to sort of show up with 
these uh, results and skills that others will be impressed to discover that we did something easily um, or without them knowing how hard we had to work for it, how much time we had to spend on it. This is not the time for that kind of approach. This is the time for more accountability and declaring what your goal is publicly. So you don't want to do this until you're sure that you definitely want to go for it. But once you know that you really want to, then go ahead and, and bring these folks in and ask for support. And what do I mean by ask by support? It could mean different things for different relationships. But basically what we're talking about is getting some extra time or flexibility at home or at work that will enable you to meet your study targets. So at work, that might mean that some of your colleagues are going to cover for you if you have a lot of responsibilities right now and you can downshift that by 20 or 30% uh, by just having some folks step in for a period of time and maybe you make that up to them on the back end. Or it can mean just more directly going to management saying, hey, I'm gonna be working on this. I don't wanna take on extra work right now. If anything, I'd like to downshift a little bit just for the next three, four months while I'm going through the study process. And you can be more specific in what you're looking for. Maybe they'll have some ideas as well. It could mean taking an extended lunch break or coming in a little bit late one day or leaving a little bit early. Just something that's going to give you that little bit of extra bandwidth, not just in terms of time, but in terms of energy. I think we all know that if you're up to a lot and you're working hard and it's consuming all your hours, especially if you've got a lot of commitments at home, then uh it's tough not only to find the time, but also to find the energy to really focus properly the way we need to for studying. And that brings us to home, right? Depending on what your home situation is, if you have a partner or family or roommates or whatever the case may be, letting them know that this is what you're going to be up to and really enrolling them in the idea that you're going to be at this for a while and that their understanding and participation of that is key to your success. So if they can take care of a, a few extra chores around the house, maybe understanding that you're gonna have your head down for the next few months and for good reason. Number five, download the exam specification and reference handbook. You can download the exam specification for your discipline, whether that's HVAC and refrigeration, thermal fluid systems, or anything else from the NCS website. And I'll link the NCS website in the show notes so you can jump right to the page where you're gonna be downloading the exam spec. And um, those are available without even having an account. So you can get, anybody can download the exam spec. If you want the reference handbook, you do have to create a My NCS login, which there's no reason not to go ahead and do that. It doesn't cost anything. And the reference handbook is available for free as well. So make sure you download the latest version. They've had multiple versions. I think it's up to version 1.8 at the time of this recording. It may be further along by the time uh, you hear this. And since the PE exam is a closed book computer-based test, the reference handbook is the only resource that you'll have on the day of the exam. So it's critical that you know what information it contains and how to navigate it quickly. So the sooner you can get your hands on that, the better. Just have a quick look through for now. You don't have to worry about you know, memorizing exactly where everything is. You're going to build that experience later through solving example practice problems. But for now, we just want to make sure that you have it, you know where to find it, and it's uh, readily available to you before you start sketching out what your study process is gonna look like. Number six, purchase an approved calculator. So there are three types of calculators that NCS approves, and I recommend getting your calculator as early as possible at the beginning of your study process 
so that you have the opportunity to get used to it before your exam day. This thing's gonna be your right hand. So the last thing you wanna do is work with a different calculator when you're studying or work with the calculator on your computer or something like that. And then all of a sudden, it's slowing you down and creating cognitive friction for you as you're trying to think through these problems. Basically, you wanna use exactly the same tools as you're gonna have on your exam day as much as possible so that you can simulate that exam-like experience. So which models are available? You can find this on the NCS website as well, but I'll just tell you what they are if you wanna Google them. You can check out the Casio FX115 and FX991, Hewlett Packard 33s and 35s, and the Texas Instrument TI30X and TI36X. So I have two of these three. I have the TI30X2S, and that's my go-to. That's my favorite one, probably because I got it first and I'm very comfortable with it. I'm able to be fast, and I very rarely make a silly mistake by you know, just punching the wrong button or having to start over and, and type my whole calculation again, things like that. That's kind of what ultimately lends itself to speed. Or when you do make a mistake, being able to quickly find the delete key. It's almost like, you know, watching somebody who's not great at uh, typing try to use a keyboard. You just, you don't want to be that person. You want to be very quick on your calculator. So the, the TI-X2S is a great choice. I also have the Casio FX-115. And um, I don't like it quite as much, but I it's hard for me to put my finger on why. Um, the, the way exponents work on it are uh, down the bottom. There's like a times 10 to the X button. And then there's an answer button that will quickly bring up the previous answer. You would think those things would make things easier and faster. So maybe if I'd had this one first, I'd like it even more. But those things just seem to end up tricking me up. So, um, And then the way you access um, functions that are above functions on certain um, calculations, if that makes sense, the Casio has a shift button, whereas the TI has a second button. Same idea, but just a slightly different implementation. So they, 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 they're scientific calculators. They all do the same things. None of these are going to give you an advantage over any other one. So you can almost flip a coin and just pick one. But once you pick one, stick with it, get used to it, and that's going to help you out a lot when you get closer down the line. Number seven, set up your study space. So before you get started, decide consciously and intentionally where you plan on studying. Are you going to study at the library? Are you going to study at home? Are you going to stay late at work and study in the office? What is your plan for where you're going to get this done? Are you going to use some combination of those? It sounds like a small detail, but if you're figuring all this out on the fly, then you end up with unexpected obstacles. Like you thought you were going to study at home, but then it turned out to be too distracting because your kids are running around. Or you thought you were going to study at work, but what you realize is there's actually a lot of other people that stay late in the office and they get a bit silly after hours, after everybody leaves, and it's not as good an environment as you thought. Or you thought the library was going to be your go-to. Sometimes you don't know until you try these things out, and you can end up spending a week or two just dialing in your plan. And I don't want you to lose two weeks just because you didn't have a sensible plan. So think this through ahead of time. The more elements you can control, the better. I do have one tip for if you're planning on carving out a space at home. I think it's best to consider an area in your house that's different from where you do personal tasks or if you do any remote work for your job. 
try to make this a separate area. The reason for this is obviously to avoid distraction, right? We don't want to go back into personal tasks or into work stuff when we're trying to study. But there's also a secondary benefit, which is that if it's a physically separate area, if you have the space to do this, then you're going to save time breaking down your work, packing everything up, and then setting it back up in between sessions. And that saves you a lot in terms of the switching cost. And what it enables is you can use smaller pockets of time. So maybe you only have 20 minutes and normally you'd say, ah, 20 minutes, I'm barely going to get into it. It's kind of a waste. But now if you were like halfway in the middle of a problem when you got pulled away, now you can come back in only 20 minutes, everything's still sitting right there. So you can jump right back in. And I'm a firm believer that a larger number of shorter sessions, not necessarily 20 minutes, I like to see 45 minutes or more, up to maybe say an hour and a half is great. But a a larger number of those short sessions is often more productive than a smaller number of long sessions. So cramming for three plus hours on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, if that's the only way you can do it, fine, you gotta do what you gotta do. But I'd much rather see folks finding an hour to an hour and a half every day or maybe five or six days a week and getting the same number of hours but breaking it up into a larger number of smaller sessions. And the reason for that is there's connections that are happening. We'll talk about this more in a future episode, but when you're working on a problem, sometimes you don't have all your cognitive resources with you. And the learning, the thinking, the churning of those ideas is actually still happening after you're studying, it would be late at night, you're brushing your teeth or you're making some dinner and you're still thinking about that one problem and all of a sudden, boom, something connects for you and the next day you bring those new ideas to your work. But if we have a five-day gap, that gives you a lot of time to forget about what you were doing and then you have this three-hour cram session and you're trying to manufacture creativity and it's just, it's not there, it's not happening. So. That's the reason for working a little bit every day as opposed to a lot and then taking a lot of time off. Number eight, draft a study schedule. So before you start selecting specific resources that you want to use during your study process, I think it's a great idea to create a high-level study schedule for yourself that shows the daily and weekly hours that you're able to allocate over the study period. And that period should be about 16 to 24 weeks. A lot of folks ask me if they can go faster and do it in, say, 12 weeks. I think that's possible. If you're willing to compress the schedule and put in more hours, maybe you can. Some folks want to take more time. So they say 24 weeks, that's like six months. Maybe they want to do it over nine months. I don't think that's strictly necessary. But if you don't have seven hours a week, if you only have three to five hours a week, it's just going to take longer. So you may have to add that extra time. So think about what you actually have available what you're willing and able to commit and kind of put that down from a daily and weekly perspective before you even know what materials you're going to use you can do this it's just a a time allocation it's not really inserting the content just yet and then you know in terms of rounding that total number up or down if you're going to be studying on your own and you're going to be using written materials only and you've been out of school for a long time if you feel like you have a lot of things that are working against you then you want to round up. So you really want to shoot for a total of about 200 to 250 hours, which may sound like a lot, but believe me, it goes fast and you'll do that much work over whatever period of time. And you may still feel like you're not sure if you've done enough. And that's probably about right. 
if you are using a targeted program and you have a budget for this, maybe your company's offering some tuition reimbursement or you're willing to make the investment into something that can help you streamline the process so that you're spending less time figuring out what you need to study and instead you're just diving in and doing the work, then you can cut that time down to about 100 to 150 hours. To be on the lower end of that range, it's usually some, the folks that are out of school, maybe five to 10 years, that's kind of a sweet spot because you have a good amount of experience that um, gives you some strengths in certain areas of the PE exam. You don't have to be strong across the board. We build that during the process. But if you have some areas that you know a lot about, if you're working in the HVAC and refrigeration industry, or if you're doing thermal fluids, some kind of experience that has relevance to the exam helps a lot. And you're not so far out of school that it's foreign to you to you know, sit down and study for an exam. Even if it's been five or six or seven years ago, that's a lot better than if it's been 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so your academic background is relevant as well. So if you really wanna be on the lower end of that range, 100 hours, the stars kinda need to align in terms of your experience, your academic background, and your willingness to invest in a targeted program. If any of those things are kinda working against you, then we're gonna lean more toward 150 or sometimes even a bit more, depending on the situation. But in any case, wherever you clock in, once you have a sense of what that total needs to be, you're mapping that out over some number of weeks to make sure you hit a total number of hours. And I think once you kind of step back and look at that, it, it sort of hits you that you're gonna be in this for a while, and it's not something to be taken lightly. Number nine, practice optimal self-care. Now, we could do a separate podcast episode, and maybe we will on each of these, but areas like sleep, exercise, nutrition, recovery, rest, and time away from distractions, like basically anything that comes out of our smartphones, <laughs> these are all part of the foundation of successfully meeting any major challenge and probably living well in general, although that's beyond the scope of this podcast. So... Take some time before embarking on your PE journey to consider if there's any adjustments that you want to make in terms of taking care of yourself and how that could boost your progress and increase your enjoyment of the study process. Maybe you want to start getting up earlier because it's going to give you more time in the day to meet all your commitments. Or maybe you want to get to bed earlier because you want to get that extra rest and recovery so that you uh, have the ability to rise early or you just have better energy and focus the next day. Maybe exercise is something that you know you feel better and you think better when you do it, but you don't always get around to doing it, so you just want to double down on that commitment. Or maybe you're already working really hard, exercising a ton, uh, skimping on sleep. You might need more just recovery activities during the day, and that can be different for different people. Maybe it's a meditation practice. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just a nap in the middle of the day. And eating well is another big one too. If you, if you feel better when you eat a certain way and you know that you're helping your body and, and mind operate at their optimal level, then it makes sense to do that. And maybe that's just drinking some more water in the morning to get hydrated. So there's a whole number of things that fit into this category of self-care. And the last thing I wanna do is give you extra tasks on your to-do list when you're already committing to a significant number of hours over the next four to six months. But sometimes it's the sum of all these things taken together that leads to a positive result. So the little things can actually be big. And um, you don't have to be perfect, but if there are some opportunities to make some minor adjustments, 
it can really help and, and it can just make it easier and more fun. And lastly, number 10, choose your study resources. So we've gone through all these points, but we haven't talked at all about what you'll actually be studying. And I have quite a bit to say about that and I'll share more about it in future episodes as well. But the short version here is, once you're ready to get serious about going for your PE, you've done these nine steps. You've sort of got your head around what it's gonna be like to be in this study mode for, for a while. I recommend enrolling in the full access bundle. We have one for HVAC and refrigeration, and we also have one for thermal and fluid systems. And these are comprehensive study programs with proven track record. And as of this year, also a guarantee, we have a past guarantee, basically saying that if you use this program and do everything in it according to how it's meant to be used, you're gonna avoid a lot of the unnecessary frustration, you're gonna save time, and you're gonna make the study process a lot more gratifying. Aside from the bundle, I would strongly suggest also getting a copy of the NCS practice exam as a companion, since that practice exam is the only sample material we have from NCS, other than the exam specification and the reference handbook, that practice exam is the only thing that we have from NCS who are the administrators of this exam. So I think it absolutely makes sense to have a copy of that. And probably the most popular resource from the pre-2019 uh, days before it became a computer-based test, I took it in 2014 when it was paper and pencil, is the Mechanical Engineering Reference Manual or the MERM, which is an excellent resource for getting some extra background in select areas. But at this stage, I actually consider it to be an optional resource based on exam results from past candidates that I've worked with that have come through the full access bundle using nothing but the bundle and the NC's practice exam. Uh, folks are routinely passing. So I can't uh, strictly say that the MERM is a required resource at this point, in my opinion, but I've used it extensively and I think it has the potential to be valuable. I also think it's comforting to have a big thick book of everything that you can quickly glance at the index and read up on a couple of topics here and there. So I suggest having it, but if you're on a tight budget or you just wanna keep things as simple as possible, then uh, you don't strictly need it. But you may be able to get a used copy as well. If you don't wanna buy the 14th edition, maybe you can pick up a used copy of the 13th edition. And that would be just fine because mechanical engineering hasn't changed in hundred years, just how we're, we're studying for it and testing it is really what's changed. So that's the big story there. And that's it, that's 10 steps to get started toward your PE. So I hope if you've listened this far that you're feeling a little bit more motivated and like you have a clearer path to the starting line. There's still a lot of work to do and um, that's understood. And I know that if you're serious that you're not taking the process lightly you're ready to dig your heels in and get going. Um, so I'm excited for you, and I'm glad that this has the chance to set you in the right direction. If you found this episode helpful, I'd be honored to support you on your journey toward professional licensure. So to learn more about the process or our programs or really any questions around the mechanical PE exam that you have, feel free to contact me at dan at mechanicalpeexamprep.com. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.